0: So we're gonna we're gonna actually start a new study this morning. We're gonna be in the Book of Judges. You're thinking, "Oh boy, <laughs> oh boy!" We just finished up Malachi. Now we're going into Judges. The word "judges" just brings, <gasps> but you know, it's it's an interesting book. We're gonna really get into it this morning. Uh, our title of this message is "Forget Not." Forget Not, Father. We ask that you will teach us this morning. Open our hearts. Let us see you for who you are. Let us trust you for who you are. And let us not try to, to bypass your word or go around it or uh, omit it or anything, Lord. We, would, we just want all of your word. And we need all of your spirit to bring this word alive in us so that we grasp it and understand who we are in you. And just pray that you'll speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we finished up our study in Malachi last week, we saw a continued theme of half-hearted religion rather than a wholehearted relationship. From sacrifices and marriage to tithing and offering, Israel was just going through the motions, the rituals. They were just going through what they, the religiosity of it, if you will. They dishonored God in every way, and yet in their minds, they were all in good standing. They were pretenders. They weren't seeing themselves for who they were. And God saw them for who they were, and he called them out on it. And we as the church need to take note of how God dealt with them in their disobedience and rebellion. We saw that God's word, and we know that God's word is holy, and it's true. And many today who claim to believers treat it with contempt. We live in a cancel culture who wants to redefine everything from marriage to gender, all to satisfy their sinful lusts and silence all who disagree with them. And that's the world that we live in. But we have to come to the point to understanding God defined marriage, God defined gender, and his truth doesn't change no matter what the culture comes out with. And uh, who is man that you should contend with God? Job chapter 9, verses 2 through 4 said, Truly I know it is so. But how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? Now you may look today and say, well, many appear to be prospering that stand against God. But that is temporary. And it's only because of God's grace and his mercy that he's allowed them to do so. But their time is coming. The time will come for judgment. We saw all of that as we went through our study uh, in Malachi. And there's another, another uh, scripture out of Job. Job chapter 40, 1 through 5. It says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I've spoken but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. When God spoke, that put an end to it all, didn't it? Now, you can go back and read that whole book of Job, and it started from, from chapter 1. He was, he was just putting things out there. His wife had comments. His friends had comments. They were just, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then Job 38, God speaks, and everybody else was quiet because God's truth always prevails. Now ultimately God will judge according to his word and no one will have an excuse. So this week we begin our study in the book of Judges and we don't know for sure who the author of this book was but many believe it may have been Samuel who wrote the book of Judges and this book picks up at the end of Joshua's life and we all know that Moses led Israel from from the time of Egypt he brought them out of the land of Egypt they wandered because of the rebellion for 40 years in the desert. Moses then disobeyed God and struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And God said, you know, this is a big thing. You know, we look at that story and say, well, all he did was hit the rock. He was told to hit it once before. Why is it a big deal? It's because he was angry and out of his anger toward God's people, he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock as he was told. See, that was the rock, the rock that produced the water. And they were complaining as usual. I can't. I, I honestly don't know that I wouldn't have done the same thing. But maybe hit them first and then hit the rock. <laughs> but they were grumbling and they were complaining. And he hit the rock. But it, it was his heart. It was a heart issue. And not only did he hit the rock out of anger, he made a statement that was not appropriate. He said, shall we give you water from this rock? He had nothing to do with it. It was Jesus. It was God himself. Many believe that the rock that they're talking about was Jesus, the rock that followed them through. And so... He spoke against God and then put himself up on a pedestal. And God said, because of this, you will not enter the promised land. You can see it, but you're going to die. And then when that took place, then Joshua, his second in command, took over. He succeeded Moses as, as the leader. And then he began to march and take the promised land as God had told them to do. Now, this was a transitional season in Israel's history. From the deliverance of Egypt, they had one leader who God raised up, and that was Moses. After that, Joshua led them. And these were two strong leaders who, as Israel had, as their overseers, as their leaders, they looked to these men on what to do, when to do, and how to do. But after the death of Joshua, the dependency was to be shifted on God, not a man. This was God's plan and he wanted them to trust him he wanted them to seek him he wanted them to ask what should we do how should we do but their dependency was still on man not on god collectively they struggled throughout that and throughout that time of history eventually and this is why it goes back to samuel eventually they cried out for a king and you remember in the book of samuel this was not what God wanted for them. He wanted them to follow him. He wanted to be their king. But he, and and, and he, wrote, he did rise up Samuel as a prophet and a leader, but not the same as Moses and Joshua. It wasn't the same. He wanted them to follow him and to trust him. Now, in the same way, the church has done the same thing today. People often put men on pedestals, and unfortunately, they're always let down. Uh, The the higher one rises in popularity. The more temptation he's going to have. The more the enemy is going to come after him. And the chance of falling is there. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they come from. What matters is whether or not they're able to stay focused on Jesus. When all the popularity comes. When all the, the temptation comes. And we've seen it in recent history. Over and over and over again. People that people raised up have fallen and you have to come to this point of understanding men will let you down for many they depend upon a preacher to feed them and tend to them when god wants them to grow through study and prayer to be dependent upon him and that's what i encourage you to do is to be dependent upon god not on me i too can let you down and we'll let you down by saying something or not being uh, as strong in an area that I should be. I'm just a man. I'm not, def- I'm not coming to you and, and saying I'm, I'm awful when I'm coming to saying I'm vulnerable. And if we don't all come to the place of understanding our vulnerability, that's when we're in danger of pride. That's when we're in danger of the fall. But I encourage you to depend upon God. I can even see this in the Calvary Chapel movement to some extent. God used Pastor Chuck Smith in the 1960s and the 1970s to be a major part of the Jesus movement, the Jesus music. All of this started back in that era. And he raised up many to support Pastor Chuck in this movement, but he was looked upon as the leader and was looked upon for direction and vision. While he did raise up many pastors as a board, if you will, that supported him, the truth is is that it was his call. He, he did listen, they got together, they prayed together, they discussed things, but it was his call. They looked to him. Matter of fact, from talking to some of those pastors, they may have a little comment here and there, but they all turned back and looked to him, because God anointed him in the beginning to be a part of this movement. Now, when he passed, these groups of men and pastors that oversee the association, there have been conflict. We saw a, a split within the last two or three years where one decided he wanted to take in a whole different direction and the others didn't agree, so there was now the Calvary Chapel organization and the Calvary Chapel movement, a split that divided many churches, one against the other. And it was all over vision and direction. Some want the, the, uh, the Calvary Chapel movement to be more of a denomination and others want it to be a hands-off approach. But I believe that God wants each church to be dependent upon him, not the association and not the leaders. Even though those men are in place, that we do have contact, we go to conferences, we have support if needed. But we're an autonomous church. We don't give them money. They don't give us money. We all stand upon the fact that God called. And where God guides, he provides. That's the really the motivation of who we are. But we're we're to be dependent upon God, not upon man. Now I'm not criticizing Calvary Chapel in any way. Pastor Chuck really wanted to raise up the, the churches to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, not the desires of men, and rather to looking and wanted him them to look to him, not to others. Trust where he guides us to go. If we're not careful, we can make it all about Calvary Chapel. And unfortunately over the years I've seen many that worship more the calvary chapel movement unfortunately than they do god it's about being in part oh we got to go to a calvary chapel oh we can only go to a Calvary, oh we can listen the name on the sign isn't what it's about it's about the heart it's about the spirit it's about being led by the spirit and doing what god calls us to do and we need to be continue in that in that role uh, and depend upon a fresh movement of the spirit not upon a leadership and vision Of what someone else says things should do. If we fall into that. It's dangerous because we will hold on more to tradition. Than what God's doing today. And while we have a rich history. Of tradition. We need to keep our focus on Jesus. Because we don't have the hippies around anymore. They're not here. Well most of them grew up. Some of them didn't. Some of them are. Well some of them are in politics but either way (laughs) what we have is we have a holy spirit that is is true today as he's always been we have the word of god it is as true today as it's always been we're dependent upon him and we're going to continue in that walk no matter what the movement does or doesn't do we're going to be dependent upon the holy spirit if we're not we can become complacent we can lose heart in what god calls us to do Philippians 1, 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Not a denomination. That denomination or that group or that overseer is not going to complete the work. The Holy Spirit will complete the work in you. He who began that work is faithful to complete it. In Hebrews 10, through 25, it says, Let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith. Having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now this this is the one passage that we really look to many times regarding gathering together as a church. You are the church. This is the corporate meeting of y'all. The walls don't matter. It's not the building, not the sign. It's the church. You are the church. And this tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of the assembling of ourselves together. And I still know that there are many, and this is not beating anybody up who might be listening online. There's not beating anybody up that's not here. It's a true statement that there are many today that are still afraid to go out the front door to gather together because of COVID or because of the flu or because of this or because of that. We're not to live in fear. We're to come together because the Spirit calls us together to worship a holy God and to comfort and encourage one another. And you can't do that in a text all the time. And you can't do it in an email. And it's not even best on the phone. So we need to come together. And this is what we do. We need to exhort one another. And we know that the day is approaching. where Jesus is coming back. In our text this morning. This is where Israel finds themselves. There's no clear leader. They're struggling with the relationship with God. And his leading. And we'll see in this study. is a repetitive pattern. Of not following through. With what God's command is. When he tells them to do something. They either have to do it or don't do it at all. Again, King Saul was that way. We saw that as we, with our study there in Samuel. As we saw in our study in Malachi and in Isaiah, pretty much in every prophet, all the prophets writing in the Old Testament, Israel was a stubborn and rebellious people. We can't beat them up too hard because we're the same. And they walked in fear rather than faith. And even though they had the history of how God delivered them, they would not trust Him in battle to bring total victory. They forgot their history. They became complacent and were drawn into following after the gods of the cultures that they were supposed to destroy. And as we see in their history, it never worked out well for them. So as we begin this morning, we'll see them start out somewhat strong. But tribe after tribe falls short of, of obedience, and their failings will come back to haunt them. One verse stands out in this book that tells us the attitude of the hearts of the people, and that's in Judges 17, verse 6, and it's also repeated in Judges twenty-one, twenty-five. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Is that not where we're at today? Everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. And if you don't agree with them, you don't exist. You're alienated. You're pushed aside. You're bullied. The group that cries out about bullying the most are the bulliers. And that's the world that we live in. But let's begin in Judges chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. A lot of reading. We're going to cover this whole chapter this morning. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered them, delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed ten thousand men at Bezek. And they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek, and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adoni Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his toes, his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off. Used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Just a quick comment, you reap what you sow. <laughs> and he was an evil king. And as he conquered, he would take those kings, cut off the big thumbs, their big toes, and they couldn't, I mean, what can you do? You can't walk, you can't balance, you can't really hold anything, and they would feed the scraps from their table. So what happened, what he, re- what he sowed, he actually reaped back upon himself. In verse 8, now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains, in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kerjath Arba. And they killed Sheshai, the Haman, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of, De- of Debir was formerly Kerjath-sephir. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kerjath-sephir and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Aksha as wife. And Atheniel, I think I pronounced that right, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. Now I want you to remember that name, Atheniel, because his name is going to come up again soon. He's actually going to be the first judge that is raised up uh in as with one of the judges here so he gave him his daughter ashka his wife now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask his fa- ask her father for a field and she dismounted from her donkey and caleb said to her what do you wish so she said to him give me a blessing since you have given me land in the south give me also springs of water and caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, there are some that actually look to that particular part of the passage and really pull that forward into relationship that we have with God, our Father. When we ask Him something according to His will, He gives it. She was bold in her asking. And she asked, and God provided. Now, the children, this is verse 16. Now, the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland, Because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. Okay, so Judah appears to be coming out of the gate pretty strong. Okay, they are asking the Lord, what shall we do? Who shall be the first to go up? Who shall begin to take this territory? God spoke to them, said, go, I'm with you. So Judah went up. But Judah didn't go up alone. And I believe this is the sign, one of the first signs or the beginning sign of the weaknesses of Israel. If they believed God, Judah didn't need to call Simeon. He didn't need to seek out his brother to say, Hey, hey, will you, you go with me? You go with me, I'll go with you, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You see a hint of fear here that we're not strong enough on our own, even though God said, Go they didn't go without the brother so that was the first thing they prayed god answered he should have went out without his brother but it does show the attitude of israel instead of fully trusting god they wanted a little insurance they wanted a little help now we read in in isaiah as we going through our study there not only did Israel depend upon each other, sometimes they would, go against, they would go out and get an outside nation to help them because they were not able to believe what God said to do. And God was angry with them for that. But in this case, God still blessed them. They accomplished a lot on the battlefield. But the first real sign of trouble is verse 19. They could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Now, in God's eyes, that was nothing chariots of iron meant nothing the giants that they spied out when they first uh went in to to spy out the land that scared them oh they're big yeah it's got it's the land of milk and honey it's got everything that said it's going to be there but then he didn't tell us about the giants we can't go in we can't do that and only two joshua and caleb said we can And that's why they're blessed. That's why Joshua was the leader up to his point. Caleb was also a leader, not in the same role that Joshua had. Now I can see, and I want us to see this from our own eyes this morning. This world is intimidating. We see a media in this world that is intimidating because they're completely one-sided. And we see a culture that is intimidating because they are a cancel culture. You don't have a voice if you don't agree with them. And we can see over and over people within their own group that don't do fully what they want them to do. They turn on them because they're not in full alignment with their lies. And so this is the culture that they're in. So anything that we see today outside of the church, outside of God's word, If we're not careful, fear can come in and say, oh, we can't say anything against that because they're too powerful, the media is too strong, the political realm is too big, it's all taken over, it's all lost. It may be lost, but we're not. And we have a voice. And that voice is Jesus. He's the truth. No matter where the lies come from no matter what's going on we have to stand for truth we can't let fear come as it did with israel and say oh we can do this up to this point or we need help up to this point we need jesus we need to be focused on him and as we do that all of these things may be intimidating but we can do what he calls us to do why because he's doing it not us this is the important point of the whole message is that God does the work. When he says to go, he goes ahead of us. He brings defeat where we can't. How many stories do we read? Jehoshaphat. Ring a bell? Three nations coming against him. They prayed. They sought the Lord. And the Lord spoke and said, Don't fear. Send the singers out. Johnny, you're up. Bring your whole team. We're putting you on the front line. I see people packing their gear already. My, my guitar don't work. I've got carpal bass syndrome. <laughs> Things just continue to come up. I don't know why. But, I, you know, but the thing is is that when you're called and you're put in a place, you, you, you say, yes, Lord, and let him show you how he's going to do the work. It's not that we can do anything within ourselves. It's complete dependency upon him. And this is where we need to come to. Again, chariots of iron, yeah, that would be intimidating. But God said, go, go. But they only half did. They didn't finish the work. They failed to fully drive out the enemies in their territory. Now, verses 21 through 26, this is where it begins to show the rest of the tribes. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabit in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city. They struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of Hittites, built a city, and called its, its name Luz, which is its name today. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they did put the, or they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gazir, or the Canaanites dwelt in Gazir among them or so the Canaanites dwelt in Gezir among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalal. Ne- so the Canaanites dwelt among them and they were put under tribute. In other words, Israel was strong enough to tax them but didn't drive them out. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Echo or the inhabitants of Zidon or Alhab, or Alab, Agzib, Helbah, Aphek, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Hirs, in Al or Ajalon, and in Shalabim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now, the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Acherbim from Selah, and upward. A lot of reading. Probably mispronounced half those names. But what we're seeing here is that Israel failed to trust God. Out of all of these tribes, there were only two that came close to doing what God called them to do. Fear ensued. They backed off when they should have pushed forward. Instead of taking it by faith and saying, God said this is ours. We're going to take it. We're going to walk in faith. We know that we can do nothing within ourselves. We're small. And each one of these tribes, were smaller. some of them were smaller than others. But if God said do something, they should have walked in obedience to do it. But they hindered. They held back. And so all through the, what we just read in these last few verses... They left this group. They left that group. They left these people. They left those people. And the whole purpose of why God wanted them to be driven out and destroyed was so that they would not be tempted to marry any of these women, as we saw in Malachi. We also saw Nehemiah and Ezra, the same thing. And also that they wouldn't worship their gods. See, the thing about it is, is that when you don't do what God tells you to do, you're already in a vulnerable place for another small, not real God, but something to grab your attention, which wouldn't have been there had you been obedient. But because of disobedience, all of these temptations were left among them. All of these thorns were left among them. And we're going to read... Not this week, but as we get further into the, into the book, we're going to see God was angry about this. And so he left them there, particularly to see what Israel was going to do, knowing what they would do. But he wanted Israel to see it for themselves. See, here's the thing about God. When we read anywhere that God was testing something, like Abraham, as it, as for example, he tested Abraham. All right, take your son, the promise, take him up, put him on the altar, and kill him. Did he want him to kill him? No. Did he know he was not did he know he was his heart and was going to follow through with whatever God said? Yes. This was for Abraham's sake, not for God's. So when he stopped him, he said, Listen, this was to prove. But it wasn't necessarily to prove to me what you would do, even though it was how it was worded. It was proven to Abraham. Abraham, you are a man of the word that I've commanded you to do, and so therefore I'm going to not take your son, which he wasn't going to. Now, Abraham, in his mind, this is what God said. I know this is what he promised me. This is over and over and over what God said he was going to do. Now, all these nations are supposed to come, but now he says, kill him. Okay. Abraham probably, in his mind, said, well, he'll raise him up. If I kill him, he's going to bring him back. But Abraham was going to follow through because God said to follow through. And that is a real important part of the message. Lack of follow-through always brings problems somewhere along the line. It doesn't matter what it is. And all of us tend to have failures in different areas in our lives. Some of it's temptation. Some of it's habit. Some of it is just lack of, of diving in and staying focused on God's word or staying focused on what he's called us to do. And this is not a message to beat anybody up. The, really, the reality of what we're seeing here is that people are people all over the world. People are people throughout history. People are people in the church. What was it Gandhi said? I was so, so close to being a Christian if it wasn't for the Christians. See, the thing is, is that we are supposed to be the light of reflecting jesus to the world but many times the world looks at the church and says well they're just as bad as everybody else because they're not walking in obedience they're not doing what the word says but yet they're preaching it they're just not walking it this is it's shameful for the church but if the reality is is that we still have this tent, and as long as we walk in this fleshly tent, we're going to have battles. We're never going to be perfect here. But we can come to the point where we say, Lord, I know where my weaknesses are. You know where my weaknesses are. I surrender these weaknesses to you. I surrender this sin to you. I surrender this life to you. So take it and turn it into something good that other people can see you in. And the one thing that we can see is God was still with his people. Even though they were rebellious. Even though they didn't follow through. God made a promise. And God's promise to Abraham went way beyond Abraham. God's promise is for us today. And that promise today is, I will never leave you or forsake you. Trust me. Walk with me. Stay with me. I am your strength. So Israel, at this point, had compromised. They weren't trusting God for the promise that he gave Abraham and for the promise that he gave them. And in their own strength, they were unable to drive out the chariots. They were unable to push out this group or that group. Why? Because they weren't trusting God to do it. They were still backing off thinking they had something to do with it. Now again, this is a key factor in the, in the church today. What is the purpose of the church? It's to be a light in a dark world. That's our purpose. Matthew five fourteen through sixteen, he says, "You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they take a light, uh, or they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house." Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And in Mark sixteen, fifteen through 18, it reads, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. Who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Have we forgotten our purpose and our call? To be that light, to go into all the world, to not be fearful of the serpents, to not be fearful of any poison, to not be fearful of anything going on, and to have the faith lay on the hands of And ask for healing and pray. See, here's the thing. God said he will never leave us or forsake us. God said he will always be there with us, striving with us. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says, "Let Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now These are words that we can look at huge mountains and apply. But they're also words that can look to (laughs) molehills and apply. See, the thing is, is that because we're emotional creatures, because we are weak creatures, because we are not totally surrendered and trusting God in so many ways, any little molehill can look like a mountain. Any little thing can come up and can trip us up, and we can look at it and we say, "Lord, how are you going to get me through this? How are you going? What's going to happen?" And and that fear, the worry, the anxiety. You know, we were we were talking about this uh, yesterday. We had a, a 5K race. I had two of my sons run it. I had a third one or was going to run but his hips been bothering him but we were talking in the car about our family and and our history and anxiety that that is genetic and it runs rampant and and my my youngest son said well you know i worry about having anxiety (laughs) (laughs) and it's true this is how we think i worry about how i'm not supposed to worry and i i'm anxious about being anxious and 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 the thing is is that this is this is part of the world that we live in and it's part of of our of our physical nature fear and anxiety is it it comes it's a part of who we are and what god wants us to understand is listen i know this is the fleshly nature i see it but it's not the nature that i want you to walk in i want you to walk in faith and determine yourself to trust god no matter what the circumstance it doesn't mean that we're going to know how it's going to work out it doesn't mean that we have all the detailed answers what it means is we know the one that does and that's enough that's enough all we have to say is jesus i trust you i don't understand it my flesh still wants to rave and worry over it i still deal with his anxieties i still deal with this stuff that's going on but i still trust you and if we can come to that point that's enough god will do the rest he always does it's not us that fixes our problems it's not us that pulls us out of the slump. It's not us that does any of these things. It's a place where we come to Jesus and say, "Jesus, I trust you," because I can't trust myself. And really, that's that's all He asked. You know, um, there was a an evangelist back in the 1900s. His name eludes me at the moment, but but basically, he was walking and he and the ho- and this was a conversation he had with God. I mean, it was it was a live conversation to him, where it was audible or not, I don't know, but he was very. He heard from God and, and God said, Listen, you've you have a heart to do these things, but but you haven't surrendered to the Holy Spirit. And he said, But I want to. And it came this conversation went on all day. It was like he said, okay, so the Holy Spirit told him, say, you got till six o'clock. Now this is I don't say that this is for everybody, so please don't take this story as that, oh, okay, I've got to go look at the clock because I've got till such and such hour. It's not what I'm saying. But in his case, this is how the Holy Spirit told him. He said, you've got till 6 o'clock. Are you going to surrender to me or not? And all day he struggled with it. All day he worried over it. All day he said, I want to, but I don't know what to do. All day long. And 6 o'clock hour came. And the Spirit said, so what's it going to be? Are you going to surrender? He said, I want to want to. He said, that's enough. That's enough. If your desire is there, he can take that and do the work. But if the desire is not there and we want to remain in the anxiety and the fear, that's where the problem lies. Now I'm not saying, again, that you're not going to have struggles with this. this that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that it's a peace that comes when you say, I want to want to. I desire to do this, but I've defended upon you to make it happen because in my flesh I can't do it. That's enough. And that's when the Holy Spirit can bring you that peace that surpasses all understanding. Because a true peace that surpasses all understanding means you don't understand it. You just don't. But you trust that He does. That's what He wants. That's all that He wants from all of us. But have we forgotten these things? Have we gotten complacent? Not taking God at His word. Are we not God's people? Are we not his bride? Remaining in this world to accomplish all that he has for us to do? Did he not say he will never leave us or forsake us? Again, we read that. Israel forgot all of these things. They forgot who God was. What he's done. And what he had promised them. Today, we need to put our attention fully back on him. See... And I've mentioned this many times, Paul gives these examples. He told us, he said, listen, I'm telling you these things and I'm giving these stories to you from the Old Testament, from our history. He's saying, I'm showing you these things as examples of what not to do (laughs) in many cases. Some cases it was what we should be doing, but most of the time he said listen this is who they were they were grumblers they were complainers i'm telling you this so that you don't become grumblers and complainers look at how it worked out for them over and over and over they wound up in bondage we're going to see that as we go through this book but think about this again this is the heart of israel what was it when Jesus was having the conversation with them about them being in bondage? And what did the, one of the leaders say? We've never been in bondage to anyone. <laughs> really? Let's go back and reread your history. You've been in constant bondage. And currently they were under Rome. Rome had them pinned in. They were in bondage to Rome. Now, Rome gave them flexibility. And it gave the Pharisees and the leaders enough flexibility to where they could develop their own traditions and their pride and lead according to how they thought they were in control. But they were in control of nothing. They were still in bondage the minute that they were saying, we've never been in bondage to anyone. And I want to encourage you this morning. We too can find ourselves in bondage to our flesh and in bondage to the enemy because we refuse to see who God is, what he's doing, what he's already done, and what he's promised that he will do. He is on the throne. It doesn't matter about elections. It doesn't matter about what's going on in the government. It doesn't matter. Now, these things, yeah, they affect us, and we still have enough freedom, supposedly, that we can vote. If you still believe we have a free voting system, some do, some don't. Not going to debate that up here this morning, but what I'm going to say is, is that we still have the choice to at least go And the outcome may not be what we want. And it may not have arrived by a fair and positive way. But does that negate who Jesus is? Is he still on the throne or is he not? Did he allow these things to happen or did he not? See, we have to come to that point. It all comes back to him. Because I don't care who you elect, they're going to let you down. It doesn't matter who it is on which side of the aisle. It just really doesn't matter. They're going to let you down. So we don't put our trust in man we put our trust in God. That's on a national level, that's on the state level, that's on the local level. But more importantly for the church, it's an it's a lifestyle level, if you will. We as the church need to always keep our eyes on Jesus above the cycle going on around us in this nation or around the world. Because Jesus said, "Listen, in this world there'll be much trouble. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world." And then he also said, hey, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And he's coming back with a sword. He's not being born again in a manger. He's not coming as the Savior, but he's coming as the judge. He comes, the judge. He comes, the judge. <laughs> and when he comes, he'll come in righteousness. He's coming in holiness. And there will be no question as to his judgment being true because his judgment will align to the word of god it always does and it's a perfect and balanced judgment now again we can get wrapped up if we're not careful even the church can be pulled into this fairness thing well that's just not fair why would god tell him to destroy all these people why would god tell him to do this that's not fair It's not fair in our finite minds because we don't see the full picture of what God sees. God says, if you don't do this, it will harm you. It will bring bad things to you if you don't walk in obedience. And that's what he wants us to see. And until we can really grasp the whole aspect of the true holiness, the true righteousness, the truth of who he is through his word, through his spirit, until we hang on to that for every moment of our life, every breath that we take, we're going to fall into that thing. Well, this shouldn't have been happened to me, or this shouldn't happen to them. This is just not right. Well, then what you're saying is that you have a better judgment over things than God does. That's a dangerous place to find yourself. God is holy. God is righteous. God is all-knowing. God is perfect in all of his ways. God does bring perfect balance in all that he does. And so, therefore, if we have to grab that, and we may say, I don't agree with it, too bad. If you you, you go back to what Job said, who, who shall contend with God? Now, I can tell you, if anybody had something to complain about, Job did. He had plenty to complain about. And he spoke some things, that he was ashamed to, to, that he spoke. I have spoke too quickly. Not saying another word. When God speaks and you hear, it really puts things into perspective. It puts things into complete, total different appearance of life and nature and everything around us. It's just like, whoa. You know, I had all this on my mind and then God spoke. None of that matters, does it? Not if you're truly believing what God has to say and who he is. We don't need to be in this place where we are forgetting, forget not who God is. I don't care how big the wave is. I don't care how big the mountain is. I don't care how big the whole situation is. And for some, it's big. Some have ongoing health situations that God has chosen not to heal. Some has have financial situations that God has chosen not to intervene in a way that we would think would be the best. Some have relationship issues that we haven't seen God move in yet. And all of these things we have that are going on around us and we're looking at them and say, God, I'm at the point where I'm just done. I can't do anything. And you know what? You're right. He doesn't want you to do anything but surrender. Now again, does that mean it's going to change the circumstance? Not necessarily. Sometimes it does. Sometimes God will intervene and change that circumstance. But many times, he will not remove the circumstance, but he also will not remove himself from the circumstance. So he's with you in the middle of it. And you can find your peace, not in the outcome, but in the journey in him. The journey in him. Is where the peace is going to be found. Now yes. Sometimes the outcome brings the the completeness of that story. Or that situation. And we say oh wow. But through it all. He's the same. And his peace is the same. And his joy is the same. And the fruits of the spirit are always the same. And they're always there for us. In the moment that we need them. And we always need them. It's really the moment that we recognize that we need them. In that place of submission. And is this a hard thing? Yes it's a hard thing. And that's why there's no judgment this morning. On anybody who's struggling. That's not what this message is about. Struggling is real. It's not about the struggle. It's about trusting Jesus in the midst of it. That's, that's the core of it. And that's where we can find the peace. That's where we can find the hope. That's where we can find what we need. It's not in our own strength. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, the rest of that chapter talks about the armor of God and putting on the armor of God and all of these things. And I encourage you to read that and understand that not as a um, a um, system if you will, or something that you do repetitively so that you're just doing this. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is understanding that it's in in his strength that we can put on the armor of God. You can't even put it on without him. You can't put on the helmet of salvation. You can't take up the sword of the spirit. You can't put on the breastplate of righteousness. You can't uh, gird up your loins with truth or shed your feet with the preparation of gospel of peace. You can't do any of those things without him it's in his strength and so if you do come to that passage and you say lord i, I want to put on this armor but i got to put it on in your strength i can't do it in mine and i'm going to make sure i'm putting on the right armor it's got to be his helmet of salvation his sword of the spirit his breastplate of righteousness his shield of faith all of these things are his that he's putting upon us we're clothing ourselves in his righteousness we're putting on the lord jesus christ that's what this armor is all about it's not just taking up, I'm going to put on this and I'm going to put on that. Well, you've already missed the boat because you're trying to do something that you can't then clothe yourselves in. It's not about that. It's about coming to him, Lord, i got to be strong in you. And i got to be strong in your power in order for these to be put upon me and in order for them to be effective. And look at David. When David went out to beat Goliath, well, the first thing they did was try to put him on all this armor. All this armor that was too heavy for him, too big for him, too strong. too He couldn't even move. And he said, I can't wear this. This is not what God has called me to do. And he goes out and challenges Goliath. He says, I come in the name of my God with a slingshot, five stones. <laughs> Many say, well, he took the other four because it wasn't a really good shot. <laughs> That's not the case. <laughs> he had brothers. goliath had brothers one for each of them if you needed them after he killed goliath the rest of them took off hey i got four stones left who's coming out no he went out in the power and the strength of god that was his armor when you look at the armor of god that's jesus he's our armor so let's come this morning to a place has come to a place where we're saying okay the reality is this world is hard the reality is is being a christian in this world is really hard the reality here is that i'm going to face challenges no matter what because of sin that entered the world all the way back when adam and eve sinned we're all born into it some of us have genetic problems some of us had bad learned behavior some of us have weaknesses in areas. We're prone to things. There's, there's each one of us are prone to certain things because of whatever in our system and our makeup it, it causes us to be that way. But it's all rooted in sin. And you can come today and you can say, well, I was born this way. I'm sorry. You were born into sin. But the thing is, is that God's original intention was in His likeness and in His image. The only way to get there is to die to that fleshly image the one that we cling to to say i was born this way or i can't help this or i can't fix this all that's true you can't but he can and he wants to he doesn't want to make you get clean before he he touches you and heals you he wants to bring you to the place as you are but he doesn't want to leave you there just as i am the old song that billy graham used just as i am without a plea that's a wonderful song But the second verse should say, now just as he wants me to be. We need to be changed to his image, but we need to make sure that he's doing the changing. Otherwise, we can be self-righteous, just as Israel was. We can be judgmental, just as Israel was. Then we can find ourselves thinking we're obedient when we're not, just as Israel did. And we can find ourselves flat on our face, just as they did. We all carry the same problem. It's a sinful nature. But as believers, we all have the answer to that sinful nature. And it's Jesus. It's looking to him. It's clinging to him. It's believing him when we don't feel it. Because feelings will lie to you big time. I just don't feel like praying. That's when you need to pray more. I don't feel like reading God's word. That's when you need to read more. I don't feel like God hears me. Pray louder. It's not that he's not listening. He's really wanting you to come to the point where you're surrendered fully. Not just in word, but in heart. That's what he's looking for. It's the heart. And that's what he's going to continue to look for as we grow daily in him. Now, as we get into these next few chapters, we're going to see judges that are going to be raised up. And why are these judges raised up? They're raised up because Israel fell into complete rebellion and dissension, and they got pulled back into captivity. And then they would what? Cry out to God. Because of his mercy, he would raise up a judge to come in and deliver them. And there would be a season of peace. Sometimes just a few years, sometimes more. But then what would happen? Well, they would. Uh, there was no king, so they did what was right in their own eyes again. And he would, they would go back into captivity. The pattern was Israel's fault, not God's. The pattern was their sin and rebellion. He wanted to bring them back. And every time, instead of destroying them fully, which he really in many times probably wanted to do, but because of his promise and his word that he made, he wouldn't, wouldn't go against his word. But it didn't mean that he didn't arouse in anger because of their disobedience. May we find ourselves not in the hands of an angry God. But in a trusting, put ourselves in a, our hearts trusting the true God. Who is there to have mercy? Who is there to bring peace? Who is there to give us what we need in the midst of that circumstance? He is all there is. No matter what's going on around you, Jesus is all that's important. Put your eyes on him. Depend upon his strength and let him show you how he's going to move and it's going to be miraculous may not be instant but it's going to be miraculous because it's all for your good all for your good and all for his glory so father we